Hello. Passionate about sustainability, energy, and climate? You're in the right place. Welcome to Energetic. I'm Maureen Cornelis, and together we will engage with people who dedicate their lives to climate justice and making a just energy transition happen. They may be activists, scientists, policymakers, or other enthusiasts, just like you. Let the life stories and insights inspire you to build a better future for people and the planet. So, my guest today is Farid Badash. He's the CEO of SAPAP.org, a social purpose organization working with a global network of experts to combine expertise, digital platform, and financial solutions to develop open source solutions, accelerating climate transition in more inclusive societies. While studying at a prestigious French business school, Farid began to question the idea of serving shareholders. For him, satisfying a much wider ecosystem of stakeholders is necessary for business success. Little did he know that he was, more than 25 years ago, breaking conventions and starting a career in sustainability. Since then, Farid has worked in major corporations, charities, universities, and consultancies in multiple locations across the world. She's been instrumental in shaping several critical developments to strengthen coordination between public and private actors around environmental and social issues. For example, Farid helped align business at COP21 around climate positions. She's also launched leading global initiatives such as B4IG, which enable OECD governments and multinational companies to join forces for more inclusive growth. So, Farid, welcome to Energetic. Hello, pleasure to talk to you today. Thank you, Farid. So, Farid, your experience of over 20 years in various fields of sustainability in the service of business and the planet makes you almost a veteran. So, where does this commitment come from? It's a very old story. I grew up in the countryside, and in the countryside, I would spend hours exploring nature and trying to understand the connections between different elements of nature. And I discovered that because I was fond of butterflies, uh, the life of butterflies was strongly connected with the life of flowers, and flowers could not survive without butterflies and so on. So started from there and then, you know, I studied and discovered business in the business school. And, and then I was taught, as you pointed uh, in my field, that basically the whole point of business is, as was taught in business schools back in 1990s, uh, was about serving shareholders, which connected in my mind to this question of butterflies and flowers. <laughs> and fundamentally to that concept of, at the end of the day, a business cannot risk and I cannot be successful if ultimately not understanding the interest of a much broader ecosystem of stakeholders. That's been really the beginning of all my life and all my career. So I started to thought, you know, if you really want to serve a brand, for example, at the end of the day, you need to understand consumers. And if consumers are increasingly shaped by sustainability questions about health and protecting the planet and where the materials are coming from or whatever. At the end of the day, if you don't understand those aspects and don't factor those in, in the brands, no way you can expect to serve ultimately your shareholders because you cannot be successful. So just an example, but to say that all my life had been around those those questions and, you know, could be from a brand perspective, from a production perspective, from uh, I've worked across different angles. So Uh, this has been my, my career. And unfortunately, I discovered over time that, yeah, you say that I'm a veteran. Because people at that time would not, at the beginning, call that sustainability or something. But fundamentally, it has increasingly been 
but uh, organize those structures as kind of a field. So I might look a little bit like a veteran, but things are improving every day. So I'm learning every day still. That's wonderful. And about that, how did businesses reacted when they saw a butterfly like you come into their table and ask them the kind of uncomfortable questions about their footprint, actually, at the time and now? At the very beginning of my career, I was primarily working with people who had strong values and I would say influence or power. I went trying, were struggling to see how best they could use their influence and power to change things within the organizations. So in that sense, I was exploring uh, as a butterfly people that were like-minded. That was the beginning. And now the world is very different. Now the people are coming to people like me because they are under pressure. And the pressure from regulatory perspective, from consumer or whatever kind of external perspective they need to navigate with. And um, they don't really have the keys. So I would say we'll move from in 20-ish years from something that was driven by ethics to something that is driven by imperative, which I find fantastic fundamentally in terms of, uh, or that might have a much broader impact way beyond myself. So I think it's it's much better as it is right now. <laughs> That's really good to hear because with all the news regarding climate change and uh, the long road we have uh, to just keep under 1.5 degrees warmer. It feels sometimes very just hard to keep the hope and just see a kind of brighter future. So what are your kind of practical steps and also the practical observations that you have made throughout the years to kind of broaden this commitment? I mean, moving from the ethic and the desire to come together for well, at the time it wasn't called sustainability, so so it's hard to use the term sustainability here, but uh, to kind of come from this commitment towards the earth to a much broader one and the kind of agreement that businesses have to be on board and have to set up really practical steps and strategies to be more sustainable and also be more inclusive and have a better impact on the people and the planet and the animals as well. First, I must say that I clearly understand uh, unsatisfaction. And when I'm in discussion with, you know, people who are much younger than me, and at the end of the day, they get the feeling nothing has changed and we're moving way too slowly on the climate, I agree. And I understand it. And then at the end of the day, for some of those people think that what's been doing, what's been, you know, anything done for the past 20 years or something has been just a waste of time. I would disagree to some extent because I know where we were years ago and where we are now, but clearly I agree that the scale is clearly not there. Now, that's actually why prefer to say that in the introduction because I think all this needs to be uh, reviewed with humility given the scale of, of transformation. And that being said, to be address your points more accurately, I think first, something that is important is never to engage businesses in particular from the ethical viewpoint. I think the business case is what must rule the engagement first. What I call a business case is if you're a company and you've been able to understand that exactly as I was pointed at the beginning about this kind of broad ecosystem, that you're doing business in an environment that is dramatically changing very fast. If you don't get that, if you don't get that, you need to adapt to that uh, and, and what that really means as a business, depending on you know what you're doing or you procure your material or you 
process and manufacture or you sell, what's your value proposition to the planet? If you don't get and don't revisit all of that kind of life cycle, and if you're not able to formulate that, that's actually where you're missing the point. And I see this because then you formulate a, an, a case for change. And this case for change is fundamental because no matter whether you're navigating in good times or in recession times, at the end of the day, you know that there is a journey and a transformation that is required no matter what. So that's my point number one, business case. Point number two, I think no one is perfect. I am not perfect myself. I certainly not. So I think being judgmental is not necessarily the right thing to do. And I would actually even be provocative about that because it's very easy to be critical about some particular business segments, the like, you know, oil and gas or whatever. But any business today is to some extent successful or making money because people are using the services. So at the end of the day, it's too easy to be critical about some, which doesn't mean that they're not moving fast enough, don't transform enough, uh, you know, at the pace that is required or whatever. It's not my point. My point is to say that at the end of the day, being judgmental is not what we help people to listen to you and be interested and, and find whatever you want to, to suggest to them attractive. So this, my point number two is to make it attractive, no negative judgment, and really find what will make a change something that people want. And my third and last comment is to keep a positive attitude. Um, I think fundamentally that yes, big numbers are scary. There are very good reasons today to be you know, to have some anxiety about climate change, it is appropriate. But if we lose a positive attitude, making us believe that at the end of the day, transformations can move faster and faster, simply because under pressure, through innovation, through just because the fact that people, you know, want to change. If you lose this positive attitude, which is the fundamental ingredient that makes change possible. And I'm just like, um, close that point with the fascinating example when you look at past innovations uh, the past one two centuries people used to for example on mobility people used to to use horses and the moment when people stopped using horses to use cars and yes fossil energy cars this change happened in like 10 20 years at the end of the day very fast so what i'm doing is with this example is that we can leave today and fully as fast as possible similar changes in, for example, in our mobility or in many things around us. There is no reason why, even though the scale has not been there yet and the pace has been too slow up to now, that there is no an acceleration that makes us in a situation we can believe that a positive attitude is possible to believe that we can change much faster in the years, in the coming years, that would have been the case in the past years. Just because it takes time actually also for people to build a business case to find this transformation attractive and basically to find the right levels to move faster and faster. So isn't it about, I mean, you made a point about uh, the business case of being non-judgmental and staying positive. Is it about engaging the younger generations and uh, of entrepreneurs, of business people, of also people working in companies because companies are made of the people that, that that work for them. Isn't it about engaging them in in this kind of sustainable forward-looking approach? Is it something that you try to transmit to students and to, to younger professionals as well? I think it's about being inclusive. It's about being inclusive. I mean, there is no, no way everyone 
at the end of the day, always people will be left aside or will never be interested in anything we're talking about today. So, I mean, it's not about being inclusive with 100% of people. That would just never happen. However, being carefully capable to understand the different perceptions or concerns of multiple segments of societies is important. And whenever we talk about transitions, I mean that people need at some point from actually even a selfish perspective of it, understand you know what's in for them. So longer we're not capable to find out or understand a inclusive approach, we're missing the point and we're creating resistances. So if it's not about just like talking to the youth, because youth can be have very good reasons to believe that the elder people have not moved fast enough on climate, but at the end of the day, should that be the case? And I mean, I fully agree with this. This is judgmental. <laughs> there are reasons why the elder people have not moved fast enough, you know? And if other people who, by the way, have influence and still quite a good degree of, of influence on how we shape the society, or we don't shape it. I mean, if you're not embodied, we can't move forward. So inclusiveness would be my, my, my point here. Yeah, fascinating. So you are also a community engagement expert, so it's really about inclusivity. And you're an advocate for a better integration of climate and human rights across multilateral, bilateral and regulatory initiatives. So what do you see as the biggest trends, the biggest challenges and also the biggest opportunities at the moment? I think challenges come down to potentially three things. Number one, I would say that people in responsibility, generally speaking, don't get it. What I mean when I say don't get it, it's just that they're not trained for that. They're not educated for that. So if you talk about policymakers or if you are to cop and you look at negotiators, a negotiator in a cop fundamentally is someone who is trained to negotiate. But negotiate fundamentally, for example, trade uh, agreements. The trade agreement between two countries or multiple countries, whether they need to agree on how best uh, to align and best approach to to balance uh, fishery production across, across continent or whatever. Talking about climate change as you know, different keys and different you know contextual information, and and actually the responsibilities are much more blurred. It's 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 complicated. So it's just an example, but to say that at the end of the day, the problem is that things are moving slowly because. The cohort of people, the ecosystem of people in charge don't have the keys. This is moving very fast. This point, and I would, that would be a way to kind of counterbalance what I'm saying with something more positive. I was part of COP15 uh, in 2019, for example, and just between 2019, 20, in COP21, 2015, and even uh, Glasgow 20, well, that was two years of last year, basically. I can see that education has improved significantly. But still, point number one, poor people don't get it overall. Point number two, in terms of challenges, mandates. Those questions of, so you, you mentioned climate and human rights. What I call human rights here, it's not necessarily because sometimes people think that human rights is fundamental, but fundamental human rights that can be violated. And, and obviously I'm talking about that, but not only. I'm actually also talking about, to connect with a previous uh, point that I made earlier, inclusiveness, something more let's say positive about human rights, something that is more about being careful about the social transitions and being inclusive of the different uh, dimensions of society. It's not necessarily exclusive about, you know, forced labor or whatever. And for the second point, for first, my first point to talk about challenges is about these questions of um, education. Second point is about mandate. Understanding and being capable to move regulatory framework or all those initiatives on um, 
are the more positive inclusion of human rights and climate implies that people must have the right mandate. And at the end of the day, if I'm a representative of whatever country or whatever organization, my mandate is limited, all the issues are shared. So there is this question of how we align you, me, in terms of how we with our different mandates, I'm not able, I don't have the right, you know, if I, even if I'm president of whatever country, I have a mandate that is limited at the end of the day. So how we agree and align on some common ground to define something together, it's not easy. And the last challenge, and the second challenge remains a big challenge <laughs> today. And actually the geopolitical context makes it even more difficult because we're in a context where there are growing competition instead of growing collaboration, just just look at Europe and Brexit. Brexit is just not taking something too big from a climate perspective. Brexit generates a lot of unnecessary conflicts between countries in a given continent where at the end of the day, it makes capacity for these different countries to have a shared mandate more complicated. And that's just one little, in a way, example compared to the European Union and France, European Union and, and China or then the U.S. in competition with China and some other aspects. All those things are kind of making the agenda more complicated. And last part is actually the conflicting conflicting regulatory frameworks. If you take the example of public spending, because I worked on this concept a lot, there is a very important concept that has been developed to avoid or to fight corruption. That is the objective assessment, for example, of how you spend public money. And then... And it's good <laughs> to have that kind of principle. But then, because you want this to, to remain objective, uh, you have difficulties to uh, to assess how to factor what is a little bit more subjective. And to some extent, some climate-related considerations, some social human right-related considerations are a little bit more subjective and more difficult to kind of assess equally. And that makes, in some cases, public spending difficult to properly factor extra financial dimensions whenever a public program has to spend public money. That's just an example, but showing the complexity. So moving on a more positive note, just to stop on that, I would say that what is positive, having said all of that, is that external pressure is growing. External pressure in a very broad sense. It's youth, and youth is is, is great because youth is the generation that is coming in comment. Great. The fact that what science has explained for three plus decades is now increasingly becoming real on the day-to-day life of, of people, meaning that you know scientists have forecasted something true. So that means that people start to really understand the implications of insufficient climate mitigated measures. So long story short, that enables businesses, policymakers to feel increasingly outdated in their approaches, which in response makes me more keeping my positive attitude to believe that for the coming, let's say, years or decade, there is no choice. This capacity, this need to kind of move faster is, in my opinion, taken for granted. So now it it makes much more sense than ever to think when you're a decision maker to think about the butterflies in another part of the world, isn't it? Exactly. Fundamentally, yes, it gets back as something as simple as that. Okay. And what do you see like right now as the biggest let's say, trends? R- really looking at the business perspective, since you're a business expert. So there are, I would say, three trends that are hot 
actually shipping um, more climate-friendly business um, kind of structure. One, regulations. Regulations today and tomorrow, when you look at a good number of uh, European Union directives being shaped right now, they're increasingly going to shape a more serious, uh, I would say, regulatory environment for business and, and actually financial organizations to have to really like understand the implications of their activities on planet and actually on human rights. And so that's, I think, something positive ultimately. The second, I think, is on a positive note, the growing and certain geopolitical context forces companies to revisit some of their complex supply chains. And at the end of the day, you know, there is a very simple uh, way to look at a lot of the issues we're talking about. If you don't have problems at the source, you don't have problems at all. Meaning that if some of your complex and unnecessary supply chains are located in, 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 in areas that generate a lot of concerns from the human rights perspective and or uh, generate a lot of carbon emissions simply because they are too complex and too far away and too, with too many hubs uh, all around the world. And instead, you need to simplify all of that. You kind of kill couple, a good number of problems from, from the root causes. So these geopolitical uncertainties are going to hopefully, but that's what I can see across a couple of things, but are going to shape something um, hopefully, hopefully simplified. And the third, I think, is that we're at the beginning of a cascade movement, because if you take my two first points, uh, regulatory pressure and supply chain that have to be reconsidered, that means that big companies or investors have increasingly to cascade across their value chain, business partners, uh, suppliers, suppliers of suppliers, to become held accountable about better climate management and better human rights social considerations. In Back to my first point at the very beginning, business case, because it, this has a cost, because this generates uncertainties, because this generates uh, insufficient compliance. Hence my, my point about business case. So because those companies are increasingly going to have to request information and request accountability from the supply chain, I expect to see a cascade effect, a domino effect, encouraging or forcing the value chain and smaller companies to have to look at climate considerations more seriously, social performance and human rights protection more seriously, and so on. So that's kind of the dynamic that uh, I think is hopefully trending. I say hopefully, and that would be my closing point here, because there could be, uh, <laughs> I don't want to be negative, but there could be a very different uh, journey for some, I think, there would be a mix of companies getting to that journey and some companies just left the side of that, that will just not get it. And, and as my initial point that I made about shareholders and stakeholders, I'm hopeful that the more you please, when you understand that ecosystem and you're you know, part of the positive journey and the more you just understand that you need to serve your shareholders and that's about it in the world and you're increasingly left aside. That's so, so interesting. So it's really about having this trickle-down effect from grassroots movements to uh, policymakers and, and regulation to uh, adjusting the supply chain. And I think it's it's really also what is about regarding, for instance, the carbon um, border adjustment mechanism that was the EU co-legislator found the compromise earlier this week. And I think it's it, it may have an enormous impact on the way 
the EU and the rest of the world are doing business and are really considering their their footprint. So uh, that's really, really, really interesting. Thank you for being so concise and and really effective somehow. I have like a challenging question, a tricky question. What would you, how would you react when you see that a company, let's imagine a business that has to be a little bit more compliant uh, to uh, sustainability goals and objectives, etc. But at heart, they don't really want to when there's some pressure coming from certain decision makers. How would you, they, so they would hire you or Xaba to make some work and what kind of ideas really I'm just thinking of thought leadership here. What kind of ideas would you put forward to help them understand that they might be another way and uh, they can also be part of the solution if they want to? I mean, you you found the right word yourself at the end of your question, solution. The very simple question is fundamentally, and that's a starting point. Do you want to be part of the solution or be part of the problem? This is really the fundamental question. That's to be honest, because if at the end of the day you want to be part of the solution, then this has a lot of implications in terms of, as I said earlier, clarifying the business case. But then, so maybe clarify the business. A reason why, let, let's look at just the failure of COP27. I think there is a fundamental challenge there that is coming for misalignment internally within companies. It's not acceptable in 2022. To still have, and that's definitely the case when you look at the number of lobbyists uh, who participated in COP27, to see that kind of dual commitment made by companies on the one hand claiming for many of them uh, to put whatever number of trillion of whatever currency you want to say, yes, we want to change the world and we are to a positive matter. I generally think that the people supporting those commitments are mostly honest in their commitment. But if within the very same organizations, very same organizations, you have people at the other end from other departments going to lobby and to say, I, there is the difficulties for us to kind of support or enable change to happen if others who are peer companies are not doing their share. And if at the end of the day, this is going to cause uh, losing a lot of jobs and this is going to be extremely complicated for us. And this misalignment is just not acceptable. So if you want to be part of the solution, and the business case is clear, then the very first thing that needs to be cleaned up, simple term, is internal alignment within organizations to all basically steer on one same direction with implications. And uh, for example, they, they can be very concrete and selfish implications today. We have some organizations we work with, which some of their business sense, for example, are making good business, good profits through activities that are generated from fossil energy. So yeah, what do you do with those people? What career, what positive outlook the company, the organization can offer to those people? Obviously, so long as they don't see the point of changing in a transformation, they are going to be resistant uh, to change. As long as there is a clear signal, organizational change, providing something positive to those people, then they can be part of the change. So the trickle effect, again, is from if you want to be part of the solution, then, you know, step by step, the business case, a lot internal alignment, all still in one same direction, defining a very clear transformation system. And that transformation system implies three things. First, to calibrate transformation with a 1.5 degree period. There is nothing else that can rule any other credible transformation. 
But second, I think there's this question about making sure that you, as a responsible organization, play a critical role to force fundamentally your own ecosystem to also adopt a 1.5 degree trajectory, meaning your suppliers or your value chain in a broad sense, educating your clients, educating your policymakers to make the kind of level playing field consistent with a 1.5 degree trajectory. So this is the second point you need to do. And the third one is basically to, because I said earlier that there is this problem of insufficient education, insufficient clarity and mandate and that kind of things, other an advocacy role, from what you can learn from yourself, share with other organizations or other ecosystems, you know, what are really the levers that can enable other ecosystems to improve as well. So this is kind of the right way. And then to close my point in uh, the reverse aspect is if you don't want to be part of the solution, yeah, okay, you want to be part of the problem, then sure, invest in more, I would say, strengthen your legal department, have more people working in the legal department to instruct cases and see where it goes. <laughs> it's as simple as that. Yeah, indeed, it's uh, it can be as simple as that. And it feels very much like if you want to see the world as a dinosaur, you can be a dinosaur. But if you want to be a butterfly and move forward, it, you, you should also think about that. So thank you so much. It's really like very practical example of that. So what would be like your main expectations for the future? Like the things you would like to see happen really i mean it can be can be anything from broader engagement to kind of practical steps as well and uh, you know for for me for instance it would be include more the aspect of people and governments into the uh, sustainability paradigm to have really more people at the center we are just for our listeners today we are we, it, this is the last episode of energetic of 2022 and we are reaching the, the end of the year so really what would be your hopes for 2023 there are three things that are fundamentally important to me they are related to maybe the silver word that would be smartness i would say smart innovation smart regulation Smart freedom. Uh, what I call by with those three expressions is the following. Smart innovation. I believe that we are increasingly moving to a system where that are going to be decarbonized increasingly just because of cost of carbon. But what I call smart innovation implies the following. I'm really worried to see, for example, if you just look at electrical vehicles and batteries, how we are, for example, generating your needs or how people are using unnecessarily, I would say, batteries. In my opinion, for it, I discovered recently because it's getting cold, for example, in offices, that some people now, instead of just wearing a jersey, pullovers, or whatever, there is a, a new little innovation where people can include batteries in their jacket to get warmer, meaning that they need to, to charge basically a little battery and consume lithium and the like. And it's, uh, I think, something that generates, in my opinion, extractive extraction of lithium to manufacture batteries for a need that is not required. I mean, at the end of the day, just put the pillow there, you know? I could go on and on, for example, bikes, and do all these people using electrical bikes really need an electrical bike? And at some point, you know, just can't like cycle and use your legs and the muscles. So smart innovation is a little bit about that. So okay, we decarbonize, okay, we try to make mobility better, but what about this question of energy, of efficiency and 
situation where we really need some energy to be used and spent. My first point. My second point about smart regulation is, you know, you mentioned this um, carbon um, trade system or kind of at the boundaries of, of a carbon mechanism that is coming. And it's 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 a new innovative framework in that has been discussed for decades for the European Union. It can be great. Hopefully, it will be great as much as this kind of example might have some um, negative implications. So it depends how this is actually activated, really, because a lot of the carbon, for example, that might be taxed getting into the European Union has been initially relocated outside the European Union. So there is kind of a, a mechanism to, to tax the carbon that actually, at the end of the day, may not re- be required. So there is this question of making sure that there is no, as I said across this conversation we're having today, I, my point is clearly not to say that regulation is not a good thing. The point is to say that it's important to understand what are going to the positive implications of regulations, and most importantly, how people can be smart <laughs> uh, using regulations to do exactly the contrary or something else that is expected through the regulations. So that would be my second expectation, making sure that it is smart. What I call smart freedom, I don't know if that's the right way to frame it, but my point is I fundamentally believe that I said earlier that not being judgmental is important. I think there is a risk uh, increasingly to be the step beyond being judgmental is to actually force people to behave in a certain manner. And I think it's important to maintain some democratic rules, freedom, a fundamental respect of, of human rights possible. I think one way or another, for some reasons, I want to eat meat, I want to eat meat. Then whether that should have a, a different price, whether externality should be factored into it. If I want to ski, I should be able to ski. Uh, what I mean is, obviously, I'm not saying, I, I say that to be provocative in a way, but I think that it's not the same to really say, yes, do that, but with very strong externality, very high cost, rather than just like ban it. Uh, because banning it, I mean, that can remind me a little bit some of the how America, the United States, tried to kind of, of, of prohibit alcohol back in the 1920s. And then you end up having like, you know, a system on the side with mafia developing, a, you know, some kind of arrangement on the corner. And it, it's it's fundamentally insane. It's not positive. It's not transparent. It's not positive even for the, actually the, the, the purpose of serving um, climate. So this question of being smart to make sure that we push people to behave in a climate-constrained world in a more responsible manner is obviously required. But in a way that must maintain democratic principles and individual freedom. Because the alternative of that, and that's beyond 2023, is what? I mean, fundamentally, um, something that at the end of the may generate, again, negative implication that may not serve ultimately the climate and or the human rights agenda, which is ultimately not what, what, I'm, what I want to support and, and serve. So interesting. Thank you so much, Farid. Uh, we are reaching the end of uh, this recording. So thank you so much. Where can we find you? I know you're very active on LinkedIn. Are you active on Twitter as well and other channels? Oh, yeah. I mean, my through our organization, we publish some uh, blog articles and things like that. Sapa.org, K-S-A-P-A.org. My Twitter account, F-B-A-W-D-A-C-H-E, at F-B-A-W-D-A-C-H-E. With my Twitter account, very active, and yeah, on LinkedIn, same first name, last name, you can find me. And thank you so much for inviting me and for the great, actually, series of uh, podcasts that you're uh, kind of uh, putting together yourself. It's, I think it's really a great you know, initiative, which I found 
listening to several of them very inspiring honestly so thank you to you not me <laughs> thank you so much I really appreciate that and it's a very nice way to wrap up this year of 2022 thank you so much uh, Farid and talk to you soon yeah pleasure thanks for listening to Energetic I hope you enjoyed our deep dive into sustainability and the just energy transition with the most inspiring stakeholders all links and resources are in the show notes don't forget to subscribe And if you like this podcast, why not recommend it to a friend or a colleague? To continue the conversation, head on over to Twitter or LinkedIn. Thank you for lending your ears. That's all for this episode. Until next time.